Hello, and welcome to the Middle East Forum speaker webinar series and podcast. I'm Stacey Roman, and I will be hosting this discussion today. Very pleased to have Dexter Van Zyl, editor of MEF's new publication, Focus on Western Islamism, join us to discuss Bad Journalism Fuels Western Islamists. Mr. Van Zyl will speak for 15 minutes and open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located, located at the bottom of your screen to type your question. Now with that, I will turn the discussion over to Dexter Van Zyl. I just want to thank everyone for being here, uh, talking about bad journalism and uh, its impact and how it fuels Islamism here in the United States. And one of the things that I'm going to have to do at the very beginning is to give a little bit of confession, because a long time ago when I, uh, I started working at the Committee for Accuracy in Middle East Reporting and Analysis, uh, one of my former editors, who was uh, my boss when I was working at a local newspaper, and uh, also uh, he was my editor when I worked as a freelance journalist about seven years. He said, yeah, Dexter, it's good that you're going to go over and force and enforce the canon of journalistic ethics because you violated most of those rules while you were working for me. And he was only like joking. He was joking, but there was some truth. To it. Because one of the things that I've discovered is, is that basically working as a journalist, you're under the gun an awful lot of the time. And you have an awful lot of information thrown at you uh, of, of, all, at all times if you're doing your job. What happens is, is that you have to figure out a way to filter out what parts of that story you're going to include or that information. And one of the things that journalists operate under is the existence of a pre-existing narrative in their head about how things operate. And one of the accusations that's typically leveled at journalists on a regular basis is that they love to tell stories where journalists are essentially, uh, they divide the world into villains and good guys or white hats and black hats. And one of the reasons why that is a true accusation oftentimes, because it helps journalists divide uh, the world into a manageable uh, place for them to operate. And it helps them give clues to the readers about who they can trust and about what's really going on in the story. Oftentimes you find that the world is an awful lot more complex than that. But the problem is, is that when journalists are working uh, under deadline or they're interested in essentially maintaining their connections, uh, to their fellow journalists, to their editors, and to their publishers, and to their audience. They're not really all that interested in somehow conveying the complexity of the world uh, in print, because it's a lot of work, and oftentimes you're dealing with issues related to cognitive dissonance. And it doesn't help that journalists oftentimes have essentially, I think, a fair, and this isn't true of all of them, but you've seen studies, uh, and you'll see them mentioned on Instapundit on a regular basis with Glenn Reynolds, where essentially reporters have uh, you know, very short attention spans. And one of the, the interesting things is, is that it takes an awful, it takes a, a catastrophic event to essentially force them to pay attention to a subject for a very long period of time. And uh, in 9-11, that was a catastrophic event. That focused the attention of a lot of people on a very important subject for a long time. But in the years since, essentially what we've seen is, is that the interest in uh, the issues related to Islam or Islamism have actually kind of has decreased substantially. And you can see that in the coverage. And that was one of the reasons why, or the primary reason why FWI was founded. So what we're struggling with at this point is to figure out, is to figure out a way to somehow 
get beyond uh, that block. And there's another block that we're dealing with, which is uh, the, the larger narrative that journalists are essentially reaffirming. And uh, for, I'm gonna use shorthand. I think that a lot of the journalists are, are basically affirming a narrative uh, that was promoted by Hannah Nicole Jones, the 1619 narrative, which essentially tells us that the United States is bad, the West is bad, uh, Western civilization is guilty of enormous amount of sins, and it's really not our place to point the finger of, of blame or criticism uh, against uh, challenges to Western civilization or to the welfare of the United States or to the institutions of the United States or of Western democracies in general. And because ultimately the, the narrative that's offered by the 1619 narrative and uh, you know, the, the, the coalition of narratives, other narratives like Orientalism that came, was around before that, it was like the West really needs to get its house in order. It has no right to basically point the finger of criticism or uh, portray itself as, as a victim or a target of any sort of hostility. Uh, because essentially the, the grievances against the West justify uh, any attack on the West. And one of the interesting things that I think we're looking at is, is that under the 1619 rubric, any attempt to kind of defend or protect uh, the United States or the American body politic or American civil society is in fact itself an act of uh, racism or oppression. And or in the, when you're dealing with issues related uh, to uh, Islamism, any attempt to somehow counter Islamism as an ideology, as a political agenda, is itself an act of bigotry or anti-Muslim bigotry or Islamophobia. And so that I think is really one of the things that we're struggling to contend with here at FWY. Uh, and one of the things, at, since I started work here uh, in early March, I have been profoundly astonished time and time again at the number of times in which people have showed me instances in which they approached local journalists and, and, and other commentators with information about bigoted comments and anti-Semitic statements made by Islamist uh, figures here in the United States. It happens on a local level, it happens on a national level. And in some quarters of the American journalistic community, it will get covered. But for the most part, it's really not the type of thing that will get somebody disqualified. And when you point it out to them, and this happened once in particular to Sam Westrup a few years ago when he pointed out uh, the bigoted statement of a local Islamist uh, in, I think it was Champaign, Illinois. Basically, he got an email back from this reporter that said, no, you're the bigot, you're the racist, you're the hater. And that really is falling under the rubric of, uh, of the 1619 narrative, which has been around, actually, I think the, the, the larger elements of that narrative have basically been in the air for a long time. And that was only just codified a few years ago uh, by the New York Times with the 1619 project. And so I think that's really one of the reasons why a lot of journalists don't want to address uh, issues related to Islamism is because that's not the larger narrative that they've been imbued with uh, while they are going to school, going to college. And so that is, and, and how do we actually confront that? How do we fix that? I think one of the things that we're gonna have to do is to come up with a, a counter narrative. Uh, it actually, and, and I, I, you know, and this is something I've been thinking about 
pretty intensely for the past you know, months. And I think one of the things that we're going to have to do is to come up with a, a larger narrative or a larger explanation about uh, the goals, the conduct, the behavior, and the desires of the Islamists that we're writing about, which is a very difficult thing to do. And I think what we need is, I think we need the equivalent of what was uh, we could call the long telegram. Uh, 1946, George Kennan, he was working for the US State Department. He was a diplomat in Moscow. Somebody asked him a question about the recent statement that came out uh, by Stalin. And uh, he said, well, I will answer this question, but you're gonna have to forgive me. And I think it was a 5,000 word essay. Uh, that basically explained what was later called in an article called the X article published in Foreign Affairs, the sources of Soviet conduct. And what he did was he laid out an understanding of the threat of communism that it presented. And uh, he complained in some instances about how this explanation was kind of misconstrued or, but, but at the same time, he still gave people a larger narrative gave people a larger narrative so that when there was some new event that came down the pipe, they could actually take that event and that bit of data and say, here's where it fits in this larger story. And at the same time, he, he exhibited a certain tendency not to overreact. Uh, and one of the things that I think that we can learn from the anti-communist um, movement here in the United States. There was a book that was published a long time ago not called Not Without Honor, uh, is, is that it's very important. If you are going to somehow change people's worldview and warn people about the threat, you have to be very careful not to come across as, in a, as a hysterical person who's, who's, who's talking about essentially jihad uh, under every bed, so to speak. And, and that is not uh, you know, and I don't mean that as a criticism, but the thing is, is that if you really want to bring along uh, a, a greater swath of the American body politic, you have to show a temperamental uh, intelligence and a temperamental maturity to be able to get this information across. Uh, and, you know, some of the examples that we should follow would be somebody more like Whitaker Chambers as opposed to Joseph McCarthy uh, or somebody like George Kennan himself. The reason why that narrative was so important is because it gave a broad swath of intellectuals from a wide variety of communities here in the United States and in the West in general to say, here's the threat and, and here are some of the manifestations of the threat that we can expect to see over the course of uh, you know, the next few decades. And here is how, and he came up and there was one paragraph in the long telegram and in the, uh, the X article it was called, uh, that basically said something about containment and said, yes, we're gonna be in this for the long haul. Uh, one of the difficulties is, is that I don't know that there, and, and I've talked to people who are much more knowledgeable about this. And one of the things that I wanna make clear is that since I started working at the Middle East Forum in early March, it has been like a fire hose of information. Okay. And I've been able to uh, internalize a, a lot of it and, and learn a lot of it. And that's one of the reasons why I started to understand the problem that some journalists have. But there is also an ideological component to it, is, is that if, if the, the information that comes down the pipe doesn't tell, doesn't add to the narrative that is already out there, they're going to be very reluctant to try and address it and kind of 
provide some sort of context. Because frankly, they're intellectually, and I don't mean to disparage them, I don't want to come across as like a, a self-hating journalist, okay? And that I did that for a long, you know, I did journalism for a long time, and I'm doing it now. But the interesting thing is, is that if, if they have to really do an awful lot of work to basically contextualize information, they may not do it just because they, it's, it's going to A, be beyond their abilities, beyond their, their fund of knowledge. But if there is a pre-existing narrative that they know that the elites in American society have embraced, the decision makers and the policy makers have embraced, and they can say, and it allows them to say, yes, this is part of a larger threat uh, that we have a reasonable response to. And that's really one of the things that we have to, to, to reassure people is, is that there is a reasonable, doable response to the challenge of Islamism that doesn't require, uh, you know, some sort of, you know, for lack of a better word, terrible acts of violence, okay, or some sort of reworking or abandonment of who we are as a people. We have to come up with a response to Islamism. It's rooted in our tradition as uh, you know, Western Democrats, so to speak. And one of the things that we can do is, is that we can challenge people, and, and particularly Islamists and other, uh, uh, and the people who are basically the Muslim victims of Islamism, uh, and say, look, you know, you're using your Western freedoms to advance an anti-freedom uh, ideology uh, and set of practices. We don't allow blasphemy laws here in the United States, and yet you're using your right to protest to basically take away other people's right to speech. And that I think, and once, if we can point that out often enough, uh, and, and Wasik Wasik, who wrote about that in a recent article that we published at FWI, I think we can actually start to kind of confront that if we can give people a reasonable and doable response to Islamism. Uh, but if we start to think about it and talk about it in apocalyptic terms, there's going to be a lot of people that are going to say, well, the apocalypse isn't going to happen during my lifetime. And so I'm, I just don't want to engage in that sort of apocalyptic Ragnarok type of, of confrontation. And the thing is, is that I think this is the interesting thing is, is that there's no one source of Islamist conduct and there's no one, no one notion of Islamist conduct itself. There's manifestations of it. But if we can catalog it, and a and explain it to our readers. Uh, ultimately, I think we're going to be able to change how uh, this issue was covered in the American press and understood by uh, intellectuals and the people that we care about and policymakers uh, going down the road. And my 15 minutes are up, and I hope to hear some questions from you. Thank you. All right, thank you so much for that. Uh, the first question we have in is from Larry Greenberg asking, the left is very effective using Alinsky techniques as a degree of hysteria and emotion. How does a counter narrative use equally effective measures while maintaining intellectual honesty? That's, uh, I think that's, well, you know, there are times when I have been uh, tempted to use the Alinsky methods, okay? Uh, it, because the thing is, is that they work in the short term. And that's, I think, really one of the things that, uh, and they and they feel good while you're used. But the problem is, is that over the long haul, what they do is they basically end up damaging uh, 
the, 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 the substrate that we work on, the, 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 like the intellectual sub substrate, the civil society substrate that we all depend upon to be able to speak openly about the problems. Um, and I, I, I don't really have an answer for that other than to say, uh, one, I think we should just, we should keep hammering away on the specific facts that we have that are true. Uh, and then try to come up with a larger narrative that transcends, uh, that gives people, that people can actually apply into their day-to-day -day lives. My instinct about the Alinsky narratives is what it does is it focuses people's attention onto one source of outrage, okay? And the thing is, is that when you keep feeding into that, uh, you end up basically damaging the ability of people to live together. And I, I think, and the, and this is gonna, this is off the beam or it's gonna sound, I think on one level, we need some sort of great awakening in American society. And I don't mean that just in a religious or a spiritual level, but also on an intellectual level as well. And so I think that, and we, and I think we can do that if we say, look, you know, what we have done up until now since about the 1960s or 70s hasn't been working and that we need some form of awakening and some sort of return to first principles, I think we can do okay. Um, but I don't want to rely on everybody reading uh, like uh, Leo Strauss or Harry Jaffa. I don't think that's going to work. But I hope I answered your question. Thank you. Uh, JL asks, do you think that mainstream Jewish organizations, for example, the ADL, are partially to blame for the one-sided reporting because most of them are focused on right-wing terrorism and do not address the anti-Semitism or terrorism coming from the left, including racial Islam, due to the left-wing bias of many of these organizations? Okay. I worked for Jewish organization for many, uh, two Jewish organizations for many years. And I am a non-Jew. I grew up uh, liberal Protestant, and now I'm a member of, of the Roman Catholic Church. But this is kind of an extramural fight, but it's had a huge impact on my life because of my professional career. And one of the things that I have concluded is, is that because most Jews live in urban environments, and if anything bad happens uh, in an urban environment, they need to reach out to democratic politicians for help. That's one of the reasons why the Jewish establishment for the most part basically kind of makes clear uh, or, or connects to make sure that their phone calls are gonna be returned by the mayor or the city council, okay? And I, I live in the city of Boston. And so, you know, and I've seen that process play itself out. And the thing is, is that uh, the problem is, is that some of those politicians have actually facilitated a manner in which basically the Jewish condition has deteriorated a little bit. But I think ultimately in order to respond to that, uh, it's gonna take, I, I don't think that we can rely on the, the, the Jewish establishment to basically confront Islamism anymore or, 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 that, or that you ever could. It's a part of the entire American body politic. It's something we're all here uh, for the duration None of us, we don't have anywhere else to go. Uh, and we're going to have to defend our country as best I, we can without basically, you know, bloodying ourselves morally or physically too badly. So I don't blame, I, I, I think that the obsession or, and, and I can understand the frustration that people have with the Jewish establishment. 
but I don't, I think we're way past the point where we can expect that they're going to have the, 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 the special sauce or the special formula to fix the problems that we face. It's, it's beyond their can. It's, it's, it's our, it's everybody's problem. Thank you. Uh, along that point, what do you think would need to happen in order for America to, to understand that point? Um, I, I, I'm, I'm afraid. I, that's a really good question. But I, I think we're actually on the way to, to, to understanding that point. Because people are starting to recognize that their real, uh, their interests are it was easy for people to embrace a narrative about how evil the United States was or how evil Western civilization was when it didn't actually have any impact on their living standards or that it didn't have any impact on their physical safety. Um, and the thing is, is that we've been through a period of history in the past few years where people are starting to recognize that ideas have consequences. And, and that's one of the reasons why I am so blessed to be working at FWI is because Islamism is an idea that has real consequences that we're not gonna like. And I think once people start to realize what uh, the impact of some of these ideas have on the, their daily lives, on their daily lives and the ability of the institutions that they rely on to, to provide them with the goods that they need to raise their children and safety. Uh, that'll be, be a very important thing. Uh, Yuri Sleskind wrote a book, uh, he's written a number of books, but he wrote one book called The Jewish Century. And, and towards the end of the book, one of the things he talked about, he said is for the most people, uh, the pursuit of happiness is essentially, you know, marrying somebody from the opposite sex, uh, having children and providing for the welfare of those children so that they can do the same. And the thing is, is that I think, uh, and, and what happens is he says, every revolutionary idea that comes down the pipe is antithetical to that impulse and that they are ultimate. And so what happens is, is that eventually people will start to push back against uh, revolutionary movements. And the, the question that we face is, will we be able to push back enough, soon enough, uh, to basically limit the damage that Islamists and their fellow travelers are trying to uh, uh, impose on American society. And personally, I think we can't. Uh, I think we're in a much better position than, than I, I felt we were even a couple of years ago. Thank you so much for that answer. Uh, an anonymous attendee asks, how can we combat the demonization of Israel when her enemies have near total control of the main internet platforms? Uh, well, first of all, uh, at this point, I, I, I'm primarily interested in, uh, in defending the United States and the Western civilization in general. And, and I don't want to get too deep into the uh, Israel question because I did that for a long time. Uh, and, and the thing is, is that one of the things is that uh, I think that the social media is a problem, is a threat, not just to Israel, but to Western civilization itself. And, and I, I hate to mention that because it makes me sound so grandiose, okay? But I am a committed Westerner, okay? I don't have any other place to go. And I, I just don't. Uh, and I, I think one of the things is that uh, I think we're going to have to tell people that social media is not the real world. 
And I, you know, the people who have the most contempt for social media in my house are my two children. And they're, one's 19 and the other one's 22. And they hate Twitter and Facebook because they've seen what it's done to uh, their, 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 you know, their cohorts. You realize that it's just driven an awful lot of people crazy. And I think that uh, the only reason that those institute, those, those companies are worth anything is because people log on to it, and I think if we can come up with some sort of narrative that says and, and tells people that, look, social media drives you crazy, maybe you shouldn't spend all your time on it, and maybe you shouldn't believe in it, uh, what you see on your computer screen all the time, uh, that would be a profoundly, I think we can get that message out. You know, I think that the churches could do it. And what happens is that once people start to experience the truth of that narrative in their personal lives, uh, what happens is, is it just starts to seep out and spread out uh, larger, and it has a larger impact. And 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 of course, I think that uh, you know, if there are influence operations out there, like from Qatar, Turkey, Iran, you know, we should go after them, hammer and tong, go after them, hammer and tong and hold people accountable for the misdeeds uh, that Facebook and Twitter have encouraged, you know, and facilitated. I, I think we're, you know, every time there's a new uh, uh, communications device that comes out, it has a profoundly disruptive uh, impact on civilization and on people's lives. The Gutenberg press caused an enormous amount of controversy. The newspapers here in the United States in the 1800s caused tremendous problems. And slowly but surely, we adapted to them and we became uh, capable of living with them. And I think that's what's going on with the social media right now. That is a fantastic point. Um, so getting to your main one, the, the counter narrative that's needed, do you, uh, obviously it's pretty early on, uh, just having been here since March, but what do you think that would look like and, and how would you formulate that? Ask Sam Westrup. Okay, that's my, my answer to that question. And, uh, but, and also Daniel Pipes. I think that the, and I think Daniel Pipes has been out offering that counter narrative essentially for his entire career. Uh, and so, but I think that the counter narrative is going to be something like Western civilization uh, is good uh, and that there's a place for everybody in it just as long as they're willing to play by the rules. And that, and one of the underlying messages that we offer is, is that if you demand a right for yourself and you deny others that very same right, that's, that's an act of supremacism that, that you can't have. And so that means that if you are uh, uh, using the right of free speech to deny other people their right to free speech, well, then you're basically engaging in supremacism and we're gonna call you out. And that, that I think we can do. And if we do it often enough and persistent enough, people are gonna stop, you know, people will hand them their hats often enough to say, okay, we're done. And, and uh, I think it has, has to do with just not, letting ourselves get exhausted before the the opposition does and I, I think that you know so that's why fwy is so important because we're not going to let people get exhausted and speaking of those those grandiose 
uh, reachings uh, and freedom of the press, uh, I was just going to ask that, what, what exactly does this say for the pre freedom of the press? Uh, is there any violation here or? Well, I, I think, you know, I, I think first of all, an awful lot of the times the, the freedom of the press is basically is, is through silent intimidation or oblique intimidation. And I think that's really, when people know that they're gonna be called Islamophobes, uh, if they say certain things, particularly a lot of the younger people are going to engage in self-censorship. And, and I think that's one of the reasons why we need to see moderate reform-minded Muslims become so much more, and I, I don't mean to criticize them. I don't, I don't want to put all the weight of the, the world on their shoulders. Uh, that, but, but, once they start to speak freely, once they start to engage in that Greek word of parhesia, in a man, and, and we've seen episodes of that. Ibrahim Issa, who's a, a writer in Egypt, just he lambasted journalists and intellectuals in Europe and said, you're giving the Muslim Brotherhood a free pass. What are you doing? He's from Egypt. And once I think that we start to, to push back and, and make appeals to people's honor and dignity and say, just how dignified and honorable is it for you as a journalist uh, and an intellectual not to speak out about these things? Do you have the courage? Do you have the, the personal courage to stand up against this intimidation? And if not, then why are you entitled to all of the good stuff that Western civilization has given you? Well, thank you so much. And we hope your, your message goes far and wide there. Uh, before we go, can you tell our viewers where we can find some more of uh, the work on FWI? Okay, they can find us at islamism.news and they can also go to meforum.org. So those are the two URLs that you wanna go to. Uh, islamism.news and meforum.org. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Uh, we've come to the close of our webinar. Thank you again, Dexter, for joining us. Of course, for our viewers, please be on the lookout for our weekly webinar offerings email coming out over the weekend. Thank you all for joining us, and I hope you have a wonderful day.